Here we go. Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. Well, the last time that we were in the book of Mark was actually before Easter. It's not regular for us to have such a long break, but I am preaching and teaching through the gospel of Mark. And for Easter, we took a special opportunity to simply focus on the resurrection. The last two weeks, Alex has been teaching from the book of Jude. And so currently, our pattern is we are constantly going through scriptures. We are going through them through them systematically, expositionally. I am in Mark, Alex is in Jude, and this morning as we come to the text, if you're just visiting us for the first time, or as a reminder for those who are here, when we last left off in Mark, we were in the middle of a very tense and heated debate. If you just look at chapter 11... Jesus had entered the temple grounds, and as he had entered, he was confronted by the religious leaders, the chief priests, uh, those who are uh, in charge of all of the, uh, the, uh, the going on of the, the temple, the worship of the temple, the sacrifice. There were the scribes, those who, were those, uh, who literally would write down word for word the Old Testament scriptures, but they also provide interpretation. And then the elders... The elders, the scribes, and the chief priests had all approached Jesus. Those three groups make up what we call the Sanhedrin, if you're familiar with that term from Scripture. The Sanhedrin would basically have been the high court. There was nobody higher in position than these three groups. And as Jesus entered the temple, they confronted him. And they wanted to know where he got the authority. Where did you receive the authority to come into our temple and to be teaching and preaching the way that you are doing? And as you know the story, Jesus 
didn't answer their questions, that he asked them a question. And there's back and forth between the two. And we know that as our story ended last, Jesus refuses to answer their question, and they refuse to answer Jesus' question, which was, where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Was he from God or was he from men? And they recognize they're trapped, and they don't answer Jesus. So when we pick up with this passage here in Mark 12, you need to understand this is exactly on the heels of this very tense, this very heated debate. And when we pick up in Mark chapter 12, verse 1 this morning, Jesus continues to address this same group and this crowd there, and he addresses their unwillingness to recognize his authority by this very specific parable. So as we mentioned already, this is called, and if you have titles in your scriptures, the parable of the tenants. I might add, if I were to give a little more detail, the parable of the, or the parable of the wicked tenants. But I want to give it a title for us this morning because I believe this is the heart of the passage and where it is driving at. The parable of the tenants, what will you do with the cornerstone? What will you do with the cornerstone? So the parable in front of us this morning is not just Jesus' answer to those that he was debating. One of the things that we see as Jesus tells this parable is that he includes, in a sense, one commentary note at the end. Outside of the parable, Jesus says, as you have heard in the scriptures, as you have read in the scriptures, and he's going to quote Psalms. Specifically, Jesus is going to mention the fact of a cornerstone being laid and that cornerstone being rejected. And that is what I want to drive at this morning. This morning, as you attend River of Life, one thing I want you to walk away with is that your walk away truth is that you would know what does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone. Your walk away truth is what does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone. And I want you specifically to be able to answer this question, are we building on the cornerstone or will we be broken by the cornerstone? So that is the goal of our text this morning, the goal of our sermon this morning. And let me just give you an outline or a roadmap for how we are going to do exactly that. If you know the idea of 3D, we know that if you draw an image on a piece of paper, it's just kind of flat. It's one-dimensional. We know that when you add a second dimension, there's 2D, and and you're filling it out a little more. But we know that 3D is kind of something like you can turn around. You can see all of of the the different uh, aspects of a square or a prism. And I want to go 3D today. And by 3D, I just simply mean I want to look at three dimensions or three different aspects of this story and how we need to understand and apply truth. The first dimension we're going to look at is the parable in everyday life. The second dimension that we want to look at is the parable in relationship to the history of Israel. The third dimension that we want to look at is Jesus and the chief priest. Literally, at that current time, Jesus addressing those chief priests and sharing this parable with them. What did it mean? So that is our roadmap through this morning, and it's pointing us towards answering the question, 
What does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? So let's begin. The first dimension we want to look at this morning is just the dimension of everyday life. And as we look at this parable, the parable begins to unfold in what uh, in the, the current culture at that time would have understood very, very well. So let me piece it together for you and just remind you of what we heard. So the parable is about a man who planted a vineyard. This is simply, an, this is the owner. There's a man who owns a plot of land and he plants a vineyard. And this man, knowing that he wants the vineyard to produce grapes, not just produce, that he wants a bountiful harvest, he was going to have a wine-making operation, and he's going to put it, everything this vineyard needs right there on the premises. And so we see that this landowner is going to, first he's going to build a fence around the vineyard. And the fence is going to serve several purposes. One, it's going to keep wild animals out. Uh, it's going to keep others, uh, provide, in a sense, difficulty of getting in or getting over the fence if they want. But also, it will just keep in, uh, his little area. Uh, when a, a, a uh, vineyard or a field is just uh, open, all kinds of things can blow in, and weeds and other seeds. And so he's going to first protect his vineyard. The second thing we see that he did is he literally dug a wine press. And you guys, if you've watched History Channels or if you've watched documentaries, you have seen that they go and they collect the grapes. And then they'll put the grapes, a lot of times uh, we'll see them uh, literally stomping out or stamping on the grapes. And the, the easiest way to harvest your grapes is to collect the grapes, put them in this. They dug out a wine press. It's just basically uh, made of stone. And then they would literally take the, take the grapes, put them in the wine press, and they would begin to stamp them out. And so the owner puts in, uh, he digs out a wine press. The next thing we see the owner does is he builds a tower. Now a tower would allow somebody who is kind of uh, watching over the making of the, the, the uh, or the collecting of the, the different vines and uh, also just supervising the workers, it allowed somebody to have an uh, advantage point all over the vineyard. This also would be a place where if you had a night watchman, he would sit up in this tower. He would have a, his little light, a candle would be there. And so somebody who is may, maybe meaning to do uh, wrong things or to take advantage of the harvest, they see there's somebody up in the tower that it's protected. And the last thing the owner does, because oftentimes the owner was not the person who also harvested, is that he rents this property, he rents his vineyard to tenants. And we're specifically told that this man uh, lived uh, or visited a foreign land. At the time, there were many, many landowners that lived in and around Jerusalem who owned the land but didn't li weren't Jewish and uh, didn't uh, have uh, kind of a, a, their home in Jerusalem. And so what we see, all of this is pretty much the normal, the usual. Everything about this parable sounds about exactly right to normal experience and to the audience. All of this is understandable. But where the story goes next is not only unusual, it's, it's hard to fathom. It's beyond what our brains can begin to understand. 
Because in verses 1 and 2, everything looks normal, but verses 3 to 8, things really take a turn for the worst. So harvest time comes up, and this vineyard owner is going to send his servant. The way that the the contract was typically uh, agreed upon is that the the, the landowner or the vineyard owner had rented out the, the vineyard to tenants. And there was an agreement where some of the, the, uh, the land would be we paid off through money, and some would be paid off through them coming and actually getting a part of the harvest. Every landowner or vineyard owner made a different agreement with the tenants. But this is how it worked. The tenants didn't own the land. The tenants didn't make the investment in the property. The tenants didn't bear the risk if there was a bad harvest. The tenants simply worked the land. And the agreement was, when it produces, we will share it with the vineyard owner. And so that time comes. And the owner sends his servant. And we see at first that they just rejected the owner's servant. And by rejecting the servant, they're rejecting his authority, his claim on that property. They're acting as if it's their own. And they reject. In verses 4 to 5, man, it goes from rejecting the owner's claim to just downright evil because they are going to kill a servant. In fact, they're going to kill more than one servant as the landowner keeps sending servant after servant. And then verses 6 to 8, the parable moves to something that is even unthinkable because after these tenants had not only killed and abused servants, the vineyard owner says, I have one beloved son, and I know they will respect him. And he sends this beloved son, and the tenants plot and scheme and recognize this is the heir, and if we kill him, we will have absolute rights to this property. And so they kill even the owner's son. And as we look at this parable and this first dimension, a few things come to mind. One, as we look at this, it's hard to not be crying out for justice. To think, how could such a terrible and wicked thing happen? Something that should strike us, and you almost ask the question is, how could this vineyard owner show such mercy that even after his servants were abused or killed, that he sends his only son? We would almost have to say, that is so much mercy, it's un. Believable. In fact, it doesn't happen in the real world. This is where we know this is a parable because no vineyard owner acts like this. In fact, what we would assume would happen, the immediate, uh, the immediate time that the tenants would reject the owner's claim, he would take the, the issue to the authorities and he would have those tenants evicted before there was ever a servant killed, before there was multiple servants killed, before... A beloved son was sent. 
And when we read this parable, we recognize something deeper is the meaning of this because this is not true to life. There is a sense of mercy that's being shown by this landowner that is not anything that we can see or understand. And in fact, it almost seems what we might say is reckless. And as we're trying to understand, now think of this, we are studying this parable about 2,000 years after Jesus shared this parable. But his real-time audience had to be sitting there thinking, who is this parable about? Have you ever had somebody come in, kind of come in and make general pronouncements about things happening at work, and you're like, who are they talking about? You know, just, just say who, you know, if somebody was using the printer, you, you knew you're the last person to printer. If somebody was using the printer and didn't put away everything, I think the rest of us would appreciate if certain people would put away their stuff. You think, just say it. Are you talking to me? I used the printer last. Did you want to send me a message? One of the things that when we hear the, uh, a parable is we immediately move to try to understand who is this parable about. And you have to imagine that Jesus' audience is trying to understand. The first part of the parable was very understandable to them. But then there's a plot twist which brings us into a story that is beyond understanding of a landowner who sends servant after servant and shows mercy and finally sends his own son. And so that audience has to be wrestling with what is this parable about? Who is it about? So let's move to the second dimension that we want to look at, the second lens that we want to examine the story through, and that is the history of Israel. You might not have noticed on the surface as we were reading in our modern day and time. But it's very clear if you understand Jesus' uh, teaching, and then you also see how often Jesus is going to refer to the Old Testament or use Old Testament language, that Jesus is making a clear connection between this parable and the history of his people Israel. Let me give you two reasons or two specific points of evidence that help us understand this parable is about God's own people and their relationship with him. The first is from Isaiah chapter 5. This is actually a song of God, and it's a song about a vineyard. And as we read the, uh, the passage from Isaiah, you will very quickly see the similar language that Jesus is employing. And as Jesus is telling this parable in the temple at that time, he certainly has in view and he's building on this song that God sang over his people. And I say song, yes, song. It literally is called, look in your, your, uh, your scriptures. This is called a song of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 5, the song begins like this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And he dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat. That's what we were just talking about where he had dug a place to, uh, to press the grapes. And it says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. 
We'll move down to the end of the song from Isaiah. I won't read it all. I'll simply give it to you as a point if you want to make a note to go back and to read this in your personal study. But Isaiah 5 closes with this. It says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so God had previously told a story. He had sung a song about his people. His people were the vineyard. And God had, had looked for his people to, to bear fruit, or basically to produce a harvest of righteousness. But instead, wild grapes. And in verse 7, it specifically tells us that the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so we know specifically when Jesus is telling this parable, he's making a connection between this parable and the history of Israel. Now let's get more pointed because Jesus uses language that very specifically points to the fact that Israel, God's people, were the ones who killed their own prophets. And this is what we see in servant after servant being sent by the owner of the vineyard only to be abused or killed. If you look at Matthew 23, verses 37 to 38, Jesus says this. So this is Jesus' own words. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then Jesus mourns. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So the second aspect, the second dimension I want to see, or I want you to see in this parable, is that this parable is told specifically about God's people, Israel. We see that from Isaiah 5 in the language that Jesus employs. We see it from Jesus' own words when Jesus tells us that Jerusalem, meaning Jeru uh, when he says Jerusalem, he's meaning specifically the leaders of Jerusalem are the ones who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. And we see in Jesus' parable this history being lived out again and again. So let's take a look at this third aspect of the parable. And this third dimension is the parable and specifically what is happening in this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. And what we had seen happen, we saw it in Mark 11, and Jesus is really referring to it in this parable, is their outright rejection of his authority. They come to him and they say, who has given you the authority to teach and to do these things. And in rejecting Jesus' authority, we see that they are rejecting God's provision of the Messiah. Let's take a look at how this unfolds. So when we look at verses 6 through 8, this is the heart and the conclusion of the parable. The story is going to reach its climax it reaches its climax with the murder of this beloved son. And in verse 9, the question that Jesus asks right after the parable is, what should be done? 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? And we're told in verse 9 that God will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So I want to take a look at two things very specifically that this parable does. Uh, and, And before we get there, let me just point you to verse 12. In verse 12, did you see how, so this is not the parable. This is a, 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 a commentary by Mark who's writing the story. And it says, after he tells this parable, and he says, and they, meaning the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, were seeking to arrest him but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so he went, or so uh, they left him and went away. So we have one answer as to who the parable is about. If you're familiar with Jesus' parables, when Jesus told parables, most often Jesus' parables were, were simple stories. They're, they're earthly stories uh, with a, a heavenly meaning is oftentimes how a parable is described. That's not exact, but that will tell you a little bit about how Jesus used parables. The actual term parable means to cast alongside. And what Jesus did is Jesus would preach and teach about the kingdom. This word to cast alongside is that Jesus would tell uh, these parables as stories alongside his preaching and teaching that would help people begin to uh, simplify and process the understand or, or what Jesus meant. Uh, it would maybe a, a way of saying it, it. Jesus made truth sticky in our in our minds or visual or understandable by telling parables. And Jesus' parables were profound. You walked away and you didn't forget the parables that Jesus told. And so normally when Jesus would tell parables, Jesus would tell a parable and the meaning would be uh, revealed to those who were inside the kingdom, but it, it would be concealed from those outside of the kingdom. This is the way most of Jesus' parables worked. In fact, remember when, when Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, why do you only speak in parables? It was driving them nuts. And Jesus said, hey, because to you it's been given to know the truth of the kingdom. He says, but for those who are outside the kingdom, it is concealed. The way that most parables work is that the, those inside and, and uh, wanting to pursue and trust and believe in Jesus understood and would work out its meaning. And those who are outside just simply stay on the outside like, that was the biggest bunch of garbage. I went to go hear Jesus and he told a bunch of stories about fields and pigeons and tenants. And they walk away, no closer to Jesus. But with this parable, something happens that is not normal. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders knew immediately he's talking about us. Verse 12 makes it really clear. And so as Jesus is telling this parable, and everybody's mind is spinning, right? Could you, uh, just imagine ourselves in the crowd. Imagine there are those who had seen Jesus preach and teach and, and are trusting and believing, and then here are Jesus' adversaries. It's a mixed group, and Jesus is telling the story, and every single person in that audience, is their wheels are turning, and you can tell they're trying to process, who is this story about? And the religious leaders are recognizing This is really clear. He's pointing us out. He hasn't mentioned us by name. He hasn't said anything specifically, but this story is about us. 
And so the, the, the who of the parable becomes very clear. Something else just to mention when we talk about the parable on the level of, between Jesus and the religious leaders. Do you remember, if, if you were uh, paying attention in our Mark uh, chapter 11 study, is that in Mark eleven eighteen 18, that the leaders of Jerusalem were so angry at Jesus after he had cleared the temple and he began to teach that they said they began to plot to destroy him. That's a Mark eleven eighteen. This was a secret plot. It wasn't known to anybody else. But one of the things that this parable does is it confronts them exactly in their secret plot to kill him. What does the parable say? Is that person or servant after servant was sent, but finally the beloved son was sent. And it says, and they even plotted his murder. The amazing thing about Jesus and how many levels Jesus is able to communicate on this parable, he reveals to these people, I know your plans for evil. I know you're trying to kill me. And he puts it in parable form, which is why they understand. Just imagine what they had to be thinking. Like, he knows, he knows. He knows our secret plans. And so Jesus not only, in a sense, outs their plans, but he confronts them with verse 9 and lets them know, hey, your judgment will be sure. What will the owner of this vineyard do? He will destroy these tenants and he will give it to others. Now, two things that this parable reveals, apart from letting us know who Jesus was talking about, the religious leaders, Jesus is the beloved son. Did you catch that language and that register at anywhere to think that is not accidental to use this specific term, beloved son? And let me just tell you, it's, it's not that normal to be using this phrase. So it would have got the attention of his crowd twice. Jesus is called God's beloved son. Does anybody know where? This is audience participation. You can join in. Where is Jesus? You can think of the events. You don't even have to quote to me the, the passage. What events is Jesus referred to as beloved son? Baptism, right? Mark 1.11, when Jesus is baptized, God, a voice from heaven, declares, this is my beloved son. God literally voices his love for his son at Jesus' baptism. Where's the other story where we hear God speak a word from heaven? Transfiguration. When Jesus reveals his glory to his inner three, and they're there on that mountainside, and Jesus' glory is being revealed, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. How profound that after all the prophets have been sent and killed, that there is one more left, one more for God to send, one more way to show mercy, and who is it? In the story of the vineyard owner, it's the beloved son. And how profound that the very person, the only person who's been called God's beloved son, he's been called twice God's beloved son from heaven, is Jesus himself. In this parable, Jesus is revealing to those who are willing to listen and willing to see. The Bible often says, who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Jesus reveals to them what is right in front of their face. That I am the beloved son. The other thing that Jesus reveals 
and this is his commentary after the parable, that Jesus reveals that he is the cornerstone chosen by God. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks this question. He says, have you not heard? So Jesus has told the the parable. The audience is still sitting there. And Jesus provides, in a sense, his own little commentary. And the commentary is this. He quotes the Old Testament. Specifically, he quotes Psalm 118. And by the way, this is just an interesting fact. When, uh, if you know the, the context of this last week of Jesus' earthly life, he is in the middle of the week. He has just about three or four more days before he is crucified. Is that Jesus has attended Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Do you know what songs they sing at the Passover? This song that Jesus is quoting, Psalm 118, he quotes a specific line from that, uh, that psalm. The line says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 is a Passover song. Do you know this song would have been sung? It would have been on the lips of all of those in attendance. The religious leaders would have been singing this song. Those in the audience would have been singing this song. Think about this. At, at certain times of the year, we listen to certain types of music. The, the one that, that most resonates in my mind is at Christmas time, I sing Christmas songs. In fact, it's the only time I, I have a specific date on the calendar. No listen to Christmas songs before we get to after, after Thanksgiving for us. But we sing certain songs at certain times of the year. Every pilgrim would have been singing this song that Jesus just quoted. So do you think Jesus quoted an obscure passage? No. He quoted one of the hits that they were singing during that day. They knew it. Right? If, sometimes you, all you got to do is sing, like, sing the first the first two or three words of a verse, and, and somebody else can sing and complete the song. When Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected, everybody would have known has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this amazing text from Psalm 118. And what this song does, and pointing to this specific psalm, is it shows that Jesus is identifying himself not just as a beloved son, but he's identifying himself as the stone that the builders have rejected. In fact, that stone has become the cornerstone. The entire parable is about what? The authorities had rejected Jesus' authority. Then Jesus tells his parable. They're still rejecting Jesus' authority. And so Jesus tells them, his commentary to conclude is, the stone that you have rejected has become the cornerstone. And by the way, that cornerstone is the vineyard owner's beloved son. Who is the vineyard owner in Isaiah 5? God. Now, I want to unpack just one more dimension. We could say we're entering the fourth dimension, but I want to bridge from this text and this parable to today. And I want us to look very specifically, so now we know the meaning of the parable. We know who it applied to. We know Jesus' uh, explanation of the parable, specifically that the cornerstone or the, the stone that has been rejected has become the cornerstone. And we began, remember at the beginning of the service, I began by saying, this morning I want you to walk away knowing what does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone. 
And I want you to be able to answer the question then, am I building on the cornerstone or will I be broken by the cornerstone? So let me just talk about, so we understand more fully, what is a cornerstone? Do we have the picture, Des? Did I get you a picture? This is a cornerstone. In the ancient world, when you were constructing a building, you would set a cornerstone in place. And let me tell you why. So when we say cornerstone, it means more than just foundation. The cornerstone is how the entire rest of the building got put together. If you look at the cornerstone, the cornerstone would often be the, the, the heaviest, most stable, and, and uh, it would be a rock that they could make square. And if you know anything about building, unless you're able to get a foundation that is square, the whole rest of the building will be what we call in English out of square. And when a building that is out of square, you think about it. So if you look at the four corners of this room, uh, typically we know we, a right angle is 90 degrees. And so when a, uh, when a builder or a mason would be, would be building a home, the first thing they knew they had to do was that we need to find which of this pile of rocks is going to be our cornerstone. And hence, did you see that uh, what... Psalms tells us is that the builders took a, uh, a rock and they rejected it. And they said, no, throw it back in the pile. This is not the cornerstone. And they went looking for another stone. But the Psalms tells us, but that very stone that was rejected by the builders was chosen by God to be the cornerstone. And when we look at the cornerstone, every measurement in the entire foundation is taken from the cornerstone. The position of every single rock in that building would be laid by measuring it to the cornerstone. And so when we talk about what it means to build on the cornerstone, there aren't multiple cornerstones. There was one rock chosen and the entire building, the entire edifice is built taking that cornerstone into mind. This is what the cornerstone means. To have a building is to have a cornerstone in the ancient days. And it became the foundation of everything else. It determined the measurement for everything else. Everything is aligned to the cornerstone. Everything is built upon the cornerstone. And so we say, when we say that Jesus is God's cornerstone, what we see very specifically is that the world and our wisdom and looking to build our kingdoms has looked at Jesus and rejected him and thrown him on the pile and say, we need something else to build on. And every single person is building a life on something. As you sit here today, your life is being built on something. What that cornerstone is, I can't answer for you. But what I can tell you is that the cornerstone that God has chosen is Jesus Christ, his beloved son. And everything that God is doing in our world, everything that relates to your salvation, everything that relates to eternity and the eternal plans God has for the world, everything that God is doing in his church, everything that God is doing in his world is built on one foundation. Jesus Christ, God's cornerstone. 
and that cornerstone has been rejected. In the parable, it was, uh, in the parable, as Jesus explains it after and gives commentary, that cornerstone has been rejected. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, is Jesus Christ your cornerstone? We can't read this parable and not recognize the fact that Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders of the day, and Jesus told them this parable so that they would understand what that rejection means. To reject the cornerstone, Jesus says, what's going to happen to these men who have constantly rejected my servants, have constantly rejected my own son? Jesus says, they will be destroyed. There's judgment. It's coming. It's certain. But let me just rewind so that you understand. There was not a more full display of love and mercy than we have ever seen than the story of this parable. The amazing thing about this parable is actually real to life. God sent prophets, he sent kings, and he eventually sent his very own son to his people. There has been never in the history of the world a story like the story of God's mercy and grace to invite you to build on his cornerstone. But the reality is that Jesus can be rejected. The religious leaders rejected Jesus. And this morning, as you sit here, this is where this parable comes right to these seats. The same cornerstone that God laid and has been laying, God will continue to lay and build on for all eternity. The cornerstone has not changed. And we will either receive Jesus as God's beloved son or we will reject him. And if you receive him, you will begin to build your life on him. And if you reject him, you will be broke into a thousand pieces, seeking meaning and purpose and salvation apart from him. Building on a foundation that will come tumbling down. Building on shifting sand. I want to read for us the parallel account of this very same parable from Matthew because it ends with a slightly different uh, way of looking at this cornerstone. And this is where we get the title. Matthew 21, 42 to 44 says this. It's the same passage we have just read. Jesus said to them, have you never seen in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Matthew adds this postscript. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's the pronouncement on the religious leaders. And it says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone who falls on it, it will crush him. This morning, are you building your life on God's cornerstone? Or will you be broken by God's cornerstone? Choosing instead to build a foundation on something else. I've invited Daniel and Barbara, and I'm going to ask them to come up to lead us in a new song this morning. And I just want you to reflect on these words. This song says, All I once held dear and built my life upon, All this world reveres and wars to own, All that I once thought gain, I have counted loss, it's spent and worthless now compared to this, knowing Jesus. 
I want to invite you as you sing those words to process in your heart, are you building on the cornerstone or will you be broken? I want to invite you to know Jesus this morning.